0: how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Hebrews part two. Well, now let's just pick up where we were. We're in chapter 11 looking at all these heroes of faith and the tremendous appeal at the end of the chapter, they're waiting for us to catch up with them before they see what they believed for. Isn't that amazing? That Abraham's waiting for me and you. Noah's waiting for us and when we catch up with them then we can see what they were believing for. You know, Abraham left a very comfortable two-storey home with central heating and running water in the bedrooms. Archaeologists have dug out the houses of Ur of the Chaldees, and they were the most up-to-date houses you can imagine. They were very comfortable homes. You know what Saddam Hussein did? He parked his MiG fighters next door to Abram's house so the Americans wouldn't bomb them. He's a clever man that. But you can go and see those houses and Abraham was 80 when God said, leave this house, you can live in a tent for the rest of your life. Well of course that's what we would do, isn't it? I mean, When when you've got a, a nice, comfortable, centrally heated bungalow by the sea and God says, oh, I want you to leave this land and leave your relatives, leave your family, you're going to live in a tent in the mountains for the rest of your life. And Abraham went, and if he hadn't, we wouldn't be here now. We're indebted to that dear old man, and he was a hero of faith, as were all the others, and we're surrounded with such a cloud of witnesses. I'm not sure if that implies that they watch us or not, I really don't know. But the language is the language of a football stadium. The serried ranks of witnesses watching how we do, when you consider how they did, it can be quite embarrassing just to meditate on that. But your attention must not be on Abraham or Noah or Moses or Gideon or Samson. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. Forget about the spectators. There's somebody standing at the finishing post who actually fired the pistol at the starting post, the author and finisher of our faith the one who started us off and the one who will finish it for us. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and run. see, that's the picture of the Christian life. You don't arrive when you're converted, that's just the starting pistol. Now you've got a race to run and it's important that you finish and that you go for the prize, for the goal, the crown, the laurel wreath, the Olympic medal. That's the language here. Now then, having given you this outline or structure of the whole thing, um, well before I give you the next one, I want to deal with what is considered the problem passages of Hebrews. I don't know why people use this phrase problem passage, well I do, it means those passages don't fit in with what they already believe. so they label them problem passages. I'm constantly being asked, for example, what do you think about Paul's problem passages on women? Well, I don't think there are any problem passages on women. You know, there are two kinds of problem. There are the problems where you don't understand something in the Bible and the problems when you do. And most people have problems with the bits they understand, not the bits they don't. It's the problem when something is said that doesn't fit in with your previous notions and you say, oh, I've got a problem here. Well, let's look at those passages. They're scattered all the way through. The best known is Hebrews chapter 6, but if that were the only problem passage, that would be a different matter. But in fact, there's a thread running all the way through. It starts in chapter 2 where it says, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. Now who's the we? Every time I've heard that quoted, it's been quoted against sinners. You are neglecting the Gospel. But the we there are Christian believers, these Hebrew believers. And all you need to do to get into danger is neglect your salvation. That's an easily done thing. How shall we escape if we neglect? And we live in a world where anything you neglect soon goes to ruin. You notice that, whether it's your car or your house or whatever, you neglect the things that need doing and it won't be long before you're in a mess. Just neglect. He said, don't neglect your salvation or you'll drift away from it. Again, that's a very easy thing to do, to drift away and I'm afraid every church has had members who have drifted away. But it goes all the way through. There are two passages in chapter 3, the big one is in chapter 6, there's another in chapter 10. Chapter 10 says this, if we willfully and deliberately continue to sin after we've been forgiven, there is no more sacrifice available for those sins. Now all this is really heavy stuff. And of course the question that is constantly asked is what about once saved or always saved? Now the neat way round it of course is to say that the people whom he's talking about were never really born again. That's much too neat and in fact it doesn't say that. What it does say, the description it gives of people who are in danger, is surely a description of those who have been born again. He is talking, he says, to those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now I can't fit an unbeliever into that description – not possibly. Sharing in the Holy Spirit? No, just a minute, this is talking about those who are believers. And in any other letter those phrases would not even be questioned as a description of Christians, would they? There's a passage in 1 Peter which we'll come to which is almost identical language, and it describes Christians, let me just read it for you. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, is that about believers? Of course it is. And now here's Hebrews talking about those who've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and shed in the Holy Spirit and been enlightened. I'm sorry, but I cannot twist that scripture to say, oh well they weren't properly born again. That is surely a description of people who've come into the Christian faith and the whole letter is addressed to those Hebrew believers. Now even calling them spiritual infants means that they have been born again because you can't be a baby till you're born. And these same people he describes as spiritual babies, still on milk, yes, when they should have been on meat, but nevertheless, they are spiritual babies, so they have life and they've been born again. Now then, the warnings he gives talk about two phases, if you like, two phases. Phase number one is neglecting and drifting away but phase number two is to deny. And I see a difference there between backsliding and what we call apostasy. Do you understand what I'm saying? That backsliding, drifting, neglecting is a recoverable condition. But there comes a point where if you go on down that road, there is a point of no return. And the most serious warning in Hebrews is in chapter 6, that once you get to that point of no return, there is no possibility of recovering your salvation. Now that's the most serious thing. Hebrews 6 doesn't discuss whether you can lose your salvation, but whether having lost it you can find it again. And Hebrews says you can't. And that is why we must seriously tell those who are backsliding, and drifting and neglecting, do you realise what danger you're in? Because there can come a point where you can't find your way back. Now I wish it didn't say that, I wish it wasn't true, but I cannot get round, not just Hebrews 6, but the whole epistle from beginning to end, which is so urgent in its pleading because of this terrible danger that looms down the road. For those who drift, for those who pull up their anchor, for those who lower their sails, for those who neglect their salvation and drift away. And I believe that serious note is needed. Nor do I believe any of the warnings of Scripture are what are called existential warnings. In other words, warnings about a danger that could never happen. There's a hypocrisy in threatening people with something that could never happen. And the Bible's the word of truth. So I have to confess. Hebrews alone would convince me that it is possible to reach a point of no return in drifting away from Jesus. And that's why this whole letter is so serious. Don't go back, don't go back. Do you realise what's at stake? And the ultimate point of apostasy for these Hebrew believers would be standing in front of the synagogue and saying, I deny that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, do you realise you're crucifying Jesus afresh? You're taking the side of those who drove the nails in? And he said, if you crucify him afresh, he can do you no more good. Now it is a solemn warning. It doesn't mean we wake up every morning wondering if we're saved or not because there is an assurance in the New Testament that comes from my walk with the Lord and assurance in the New Testament is not based on a decision made twenty years ago, it's based on my present relationship. It says, the Spirit goes on witnessing with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Or to put it another way, you can have a present assurance that you're on the way to heaven. It is not, I believe, a guarantee that you'll get there, but an assurance that you're on the way and that if you keep on that way and keep on believing in that Jesus, you're as certain to arrive as I'm standing here. So this doesn't produce a lot of neurotic Christians wondering whether they're saved or not, but it does produce serious Christians who don't play games with God and who don't backslide and who don't neglect and drift away and keep right on believing. Now there's a delicate balance here and it's all the way through Scripture. You see, put Matthew and Hebrews together and you've got some very solemn warnings to Christians but you've got them in every other writer and even on the lips of Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Now stay in me, he says, abide, stay in me. And then he says, branches that don't abide in me are cut out and burned." Now there it is, I can't twist that. Common sense tells you what that says. And it's interesting that the failure of the Jews who left Egypt, to make it to Canaan, the failure of over two million is used by three different New Testament writers as a warning to Christians that you may have set out all right, but you need to arrive all right. You may have left Egypt, but you need to make it to Canaan. And so that particular failure of Israel to get in, having come out, is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, it's used by the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4 and it's used by Jude as a warning to Christians, it's not those who start, it's those who finish, who make it. Now remember Billy Graham being interviewed on uh, television and the interviewer asked him a question he'd not been asked before. You can always tell, Billy has all the answers to all the questions, but this one was new and the interviewer said, What will be your first thought when you get to heaven? And Billy Light Lightning said, Relief. <laughs> relief. And then great humble man that he is, he said, relief that I made it. Now there's a humble man who isn't cocksure. But he knows he's on the way. You knew you were on the road to High leave, but I'm sure you got into trouble at the end, this end of it. But <laughs> you see. You had an assurance, we're heading in the right direction, we're on the road, we'll, we'll get there. But you had to persevere in the last mile or two, <laughs> but you made it. I'm sure right now that I'm on the way to heaven. The Spirit tells me I'm on the right road, but I'm not going to tell you more than that. I'm going to tell you I'm going to keep on travelling till I make it. It's why at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, which pictures the Christian life as a journey, from the sinful city to the celestial city. Right at the end when they get to the River Jordan, the dark, deep, black river Jordan of death, Christian and his companion face this deep river and they don't like it one bit. And Christian's companion said, I'm not going through that river, there must be another way and he turns off to the left down a side path and Bunyan writes, so I saw in my dream that there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. I don't want to labour this. I'm trying to show you that what Hebrews is saying is not just Hebrews, it's all the way through. In the last book in the Bible, you've got a message for people under terrific pressure. As we'll see, the book of Revelation is for those under terrific pressure. And the promise is, he who overcomes, I will not blot out his name from the Lamb's book of life. And what does that mean? If you want to keep your name in the book of life, then overcome go right on to the end. Never go back. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and run the race. And right at the end there is a warning on the last page of the Bible that if you play around with the book of Revelation and start taking things out of it or adding things to it, God will take away your share in the tree of life. So you see there is this thread. There are glorious other Scriptures which tell us of God's keeping power. You've got Father, Son and Holy Spirit on your side. You've got everything going for you. Just keep on believing and you make it. But wherever there's a promise that God keeps us, there is also an exhortation to keep yourself. Take little Jude. The last verse says, he is able to keep you from falling. It doesn't say he is certain to, it says he's able to. But the verse just ahead of it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Paul, when he offers assurance of the future, he says, If you continue in the faith, hold on, hold on, keep on, go on. And I find the letter to the Hebrews is consistent with that whole thing. But he's able to keep you. You've got all of heaven going for you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit but God so loves you that he will never force you, never treat you as a puppet. He will lead you, he will keep you, he will guide you, keep yourselves. When Paul says, I am, he says, I believe, I'm absolutely convinced that he is able to keep what I've committed to him. Just a few verses later says, I have fought the fight, I've finished the course and I've kept the faith. So that word keeping, it's important. He keeps, you keep believing. And all these heroes of faith in Hebrews were still living by faith when they died. May that be said of you and you preacher, that we've kept on believing that we overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Not, it's not salvation by works, it's salvation by continued faith. That's what it is and let's not get it twisted. So. Let's draw some conclusions from all this. I would have to say that Hebrews teaches us that it is possible to lose our salvation. Danger we need to be aware of. Of course, some neurotic Christians are so unsure of themselves that saying that just sends them to bed full of doubts. Well, those doubts are based on a false security. You can't shake people who are trusting Jesus. Secondly, that once lost, it is impossible to recover. I believe that's the message of Hebrews 6. Thirdly, that predestination requires our continued cooperation. It's not automatic. God did predestine us, he chose us before we chose him, but he requires our cooperation. It's as if there's a drowning man and someone throws him a rope and the person throwing the rope says, now grab hold of this and hold on until I've got you to the shore. Would that man ever say when he got to the shore, I saved myself by hanging on? Never. <laughs> he will always say, that man saved me. The idea that you think you've saved yourself because you held on, it's just not true to fact, not true to reality. That's why Peter says in his second letter, make your calling and election sure. See, God has elected you and chosen you. Now make that sure by pressing on, by going on for maturity so that you may have a rich welcome into heaven. Do you want a rich welcome? Well then press on and make your calling and election sure. Predestination, I believe in it. God predestined me to be his son. God elected me, chose me. He he was after me long before I was after him. That's true, isn't it? But nevertheless, I need to make that calling and election sure by holding on to the rope until I'm safely on the shore. But he's doing the saving. It's not the rope and it's not my holding on to it. To say that the rope saves you or that you're holding the rope saves you, ridiculous. It's he who saves us. But he says, grab hold of this and hold on till I get you safe. I don't like using the word safe until I'm in heaven. When I'm there on those golden streets, I'll shout, I'm safe! I'll even be prepared to say I'm saved. (laughs) At last, saved at last, he has continued and completed the good work he began. But all through the Bible, there is this emphasis on go on believing, go on trusting, go on holding the rope until you're there. Now, I hope that may have helped some of you. It's probably upset others of you it's a big issue and uh, I just want to be both a Calvinist and an Arminian. I want to be both. In fact, somebody came and listened to me for three months and said, David, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I said, well, you've heard me for three months, you should know by now. He said, well that's what puzzles me. He said, some Sundays I go home and think he's a good Calvinist and then the very next Sunday you preach an Arminian sermon, predestination and free will, the old, old issue. I said, well, you know the answer. He said, I don't. Which are you? I said, you do know. I'm both. (laughs) Oh, he said, you can't be. I said, not intellectually I can't be. I can't get it together intellectually. But I said, I know that both are true. And both sides would like to rewrite some of the New Testament. Both sides have what they call problem passages. But I believe he's able to keep, and I believe I must keep myself in his love, that I must hold on till I make it. And Hebrews is the one book that I don't think we can twist on this one and say it's just full of problems. It's not, it's full of clear statements that we need to hear and especially if we're thinking for our own safety or even the safety of our children that we're going to slip out of this difficult situation and thereby deny Jesus. Jesus did say to believers, to his disciples, if you deny me before men, I'll have to deny you before my Father. But you endure and you share my glory. Now that's the straight, plain, simple truth. So be overcomers, and then your names will never be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. When the book is opened, there your name will be. He's mine. He never denied me. So I own him now, says Jesus. Well, what are the conclusions? It means, number four, that holiness is as necessary as forgiveness. Once again, it's not just those who accept the forgiveness of God who make it, but those who press on for holiness. And it is in Hebrews that we have this single verse, make every effort after that holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Now far too many want forgiveness but not holiness. You know, I find people today want happiness from Jesus in this life and holiness in the next, whereas the will of God in my New Testament is clearly holiness in this life, even if it makes you unhappy, but happiness in the next. But we want it the other way round, our hedonist generation just wants pleasure, not pain. God is prepared to chastise us, to cause us pain, says Hebrews 12, if that will make us more holy. The one thing he's after is our holiness and he can make it tough for his children that Hebrews even goes so far as to say, if you've never been chastised by the Lord, you're a bastard, you're not a true son, because if he's your father, he he spanks you, because he wants you to be a good boy and a good girl. So there's a, a great emphasis in Hebrews on holiness. Now the full Gospel is, you don't get forgiveness and then you have to produce holiness. It is that forgiveness and holiness are both gifts of grace. They're both offered on the same basis, faith, but you need both. And the parable which Jesus told brings it home so clearly is the parable of a king giving a wedding feast for his son. Now that parable occurs in Luke and Matthew, but in Luke it is purely an invitation to come to the wedding or to the feast. A man gives a feast and then the invited guests make excuses So the master of the feast says to his servants, go into the highways and byways and bring as many in as you can, my house will be full. And that's where the story stops in Luke because Luke is writing for unbelievers and what they need to hear is the Gospel invitation, come for all things are now ready. But in Matthew, which is written for believers, the story does not stop there. It goes on and the time for the wedding feast for the king's son comes, and the guests who've responded to the invitation arrive, and a man comes in without wedding clothes. The king, in a very friendly way, says, friend, why didn't you change your clothes for my son's wedding? And it says the man was speechless, which means he could have done so but he turned up in his old dirty clothes for the king's son's wedding and the king was angry. You accepted my invitation but you didn't bother to change your old clothes. He said, tie him hand and foot so he can't ever get in here again and throw him into the outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's a pretty tough ending to the story. You see, when you talk to sinners you say the invitation is comes you can have a place at the feast. But when you're talking to those who've accepted the invitation, you say, now get your clothes changed. It will be as much of an insult to the king that you don't bother to change your way of life, your lifestyle, as it would be if you'd made an excuse and not come at all. Do you follow? What a message for sanctification. And we need to preach Matthew and that version to Christians. Not to unbelievers. To unbelievers, the invitation is come. There's a place for you at the feast. But to believers who are coming, we say, change your clothes. Put on the white linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. Follow after holiness. You've sung it. There is a green hill far away. There's one verse in that says, He died that you might be forgiven. He died to make you good that you might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. Jesus didn't just die to get your forgiveness, he died to get your holiness and he cost his blood to get you cleaned up and get you ready for heaven. Now it's those who press on, those who keep looking to Jesus, who say, I've got a race to run and I'm going for the finishing line and the prize. They are the ones. Jesus is looking for. Which means of course, number five, that God is a holy God. We forget that. You know, I've had about five BBC radio interviews on my book since it came out on Friday on local radio and uh, every time they've asked the same question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Nobody ever asks, how can a holy God send anyone to hell? yet God is holy. His love is holy love, which means he will never be content with less than holiness for the ones he loves. Aren't you glad about that? All right, what value has it for believers? Then I'm going to go to the two charts that one of you has prepared for me. Thank you very much for doing it. Where are you? Thank you very much, they're fine. Well for Christians, what is the value of Hebrews? Number one, it helps us in Bible study by telling us the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. That shadow concept is most helpful to understand the Old Testament. Number two, it is Christ-centred and if there's one thing Hebrews does for you, it keeps your eyes fixed on Jesus. He does that all the way through, he doesn't just tell you to, he just talks about Jesus all the way. Thirdly, it's a very face-building kind of book because it inspires you when you look at all the people in the stadium watching us. You really want to go for it and be believing when you die. There was a Christian man in Beaconsfield when he was dying, he called all his relatives to come and stay and he invited them in these terms. He wrote to each one of them a personal letter and said, come and see how a Christian dies. What an invitation. See, Christianity is a way of death as well as a way of life and uh, he was believing to the end. Fourthly, it's a book that warns us of the dangers of backsliding. And fifthly, it's a book that emphasises being an active member of the church, of following leaders, cooperating with leaders and of not neglecting the meeting together. It stresses that safety lies in fellowship when you're under pressure. The devil will pick off Christians on their own. So, when the pressure's on, stay close in the family. Don't neglect your links with the Church of Christ. Be much stronger with that. Now, let's look at those. They're rather complicated. Wow. They're really quite simple. But I just wanted to take two sections of the book of Hebrews and just give you a little feel uh, of the shape of them. Uh, Well, maybe this puts you off a bit, but I like to work at studying the Bible and getting the shape of a passage and trying to see what what it's all saying. Well, chapters 1 to 2, try and get the shape of them. In the Old Testament in the past, God spoke his words through angels to prophets. See, we've got heaven above the line, earth below. God in heaven spoke his words through angels, his servants, to the prophets in bits and pieces it says. There it forms and in fragments. And you can put the whole life of Jesus together from the Old Testament, but it's a bit here and a bit there and a bit from somewhere else. It's all there, but it's in bits and pieces. It's like a jigsaw puzzle when you first open the box and the prophets gave the word to men but in fact that word brought death to them the word of the law brought death but now in these last days he has spoken to us through a son a son who died and through the son he has spoken to us through the apostles we hear the words of the prophets in the old testament the words of the apostles in the new testament so the scriptures come from the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles to us and tell us the way of salvation. Now Jesus came, became a man, died and then returned to heaven as our pioneer. That's a favourite title for Jesus in the letter to the Hebrews. It means the trailblazer, the one who went ahead, the one who blazed a trail for us to follow. And he did all this so that we might follow him back to heaven and he is now above the angels. A man is above the angels now. That had never before happened till Jesus ascended. There's a human being above the angels and he has poured out the promised Holy Spirit upon us, enabling miracles to be done, that's mentioned in Hebrews 2, so that men may follow the pioneer and finish up above the angels and many sons be brought to glory. Isn't that amazing? You're going to be above the angels. They'll serve you, whereas at the moment man was made a little lower than the angels. The evolutionists, you know, they can't cope with angels because if we came from monkeys, where did the angels come from? You see? You only believe in angels if you believe in creation. And the angels are above us right now. They are superior to us in every way. In strength and intelligence and yet one day because Jesus our pioneer is now above the angels, we will follow and many sons will be brought to glory ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth. So an awful lot of angels in Hebrews, they're above us here and we're above them there and that's because the Son of God, the Word of God above the angels was made lower than the angels and then ascended far above them, so that through the promised Holy Spirit we might follow. So it's really quite simple, isn't it? But it gives you a little feel of the first two chapters. Keep that frame in your mind as you read it. Now, (laughs) this is the most complicated one. If you like to switch off, you're free to do so. (laughs) But I wonder if you remember what I told you in an earlier talk, that Hebrew thinking is horizontal line time thinking between the past, present and future, whereas Greek thinking is more space thinking, a vertical line between the above and below. Now then Hebrews combines those two again, as John's Gospel does to a degree. So we have the vertical line between the heavenly and the earthly, the invisible world and the visible world, and we have the timeline between the old covenant and the new covenant. They all meet at the cross. Now then, faith takes us in this direction from the earthly and the old to the heavenly and the new that diagonal? This is heaven, this is earth, this is the past, this is the future. Faith brings us out of the past and out of the earthly into the heavenly and the future. That's the direction of Hebrews thinking. But you can also fall back the other direction. You can go back from the new covenant into the old, you can go down from the heavenly to the earthly again. This is where the shadows are, the copies, and this is where the real substance is. So it's just putting the vertical and the horizontal together. The old sacrifices, which are repeated, the new sacrifice once for all. The old priests, many priests, Levites, the new priesthood, one priest, Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek. The old sanctuary with its closed tabernacle, and the new sanctuary with its open theme, which is, sorry, it should be thrown, I think. Open throne, sorry, whatever it is. Open. You can come right into the Holy of Holies now. I love the remark of the Scottish housewife who said she threw her apron over her head in the kitchen and she was in the Holy of Holies immediately. (laughs) See, she was living up here. Now to go back down there, isn't that awful? (laughs) Through faith we're coming out of the present evil age into the age to come. Through faith we're moving from the earthly to the heavenly from that which is flesh and death and shadows into that which is spirit and life and substance. But there are two directions you can travel. You can either come that way or you can drift back that way. Now that's chapters 4 to 10 in a nutshell. And again, the picture, if uh, you're copying it down, that'll just keep you in a framework that will fit everything in. Well, it all is a bit complicated, isn't it? It isn't really, but uh, perhaps it's just my complicated mind that plays around with these charts (laughs) and things. Could well be, but I think you've got the drift. It's the combination of this timeline and this space line – the above and below and the then and the yet to be. And the whole of Hebrews is saying keep on moving in this direction until you get there. Don't go in this direction. So it's not just go on, go back, it's go up and not down. It's a combination of on and up. As the British Prime Minister said at the turn of the century, up and up and up and on and on and on. Well, that was his motto for the election. Um, But Hebrews is saying up and up and up and on and on and on. Don't go back and down and down and back and back. And uh, that combines, as you see, the Greek vertical and the Hebrew horizontal thinking. He's a very uh, brilliant thinker really, as well as his language is quite brilliant Greek. But he's clearly combining a bit of Greek thinking with a bit of Hebrew thinking here to reach as many people as possible with this message. And there we are. And that's the end of Hebrews, so now all you do is go and read it and hope you'll understand a bit more. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.